We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning in preparation for the rest of our worship and in preparation for hearing the word this morning. We're going to take communion now. And um, Jesus said, when you take this meal, do this and remember me. And I think one of the reasons, if we're all very honest with each other, why we need this reminder, I know I need it again this morning, is that I, I think we come here as really good managers. We, we manage our behavior. Maybe we manage our sin. Um, we, we got people pleased with us, maybe most of them, before we come here. I don't know about you, but most of my week just looks like, is everything covered? What, what do people think? Is, is my behavior good, bad? Am I, have I managed the week okay? And this meal reminds me that that's not the gospel. In fact, it's a lie. And that's not what I put my trust in. My ability to manage my week, manage my sin, manage my behavior, manage my relationships. That's not the gospel. I want to kind of illustrate this via Paul and his uh, conversation with Peter in Galatians 2. Um, Peter has in Antioch, and he's been hanging out. He's Jew, and he's been hanging out with Gentiles, eating with them, eating a meal. And he's been eating things that were probably forbidden for him as a Jew. He's actually living and trusting the gospel, and he's been eating with people things that he couldn't eat before Christ's atonement, or he didn't eat before Christ's atonement. And then some people come, some Jews come from Jerusalem, and he backs off. He stops hanging with them. He stops eating with them. He stops. He goes back to behavior. He goes back to what appears to be right behavior. And Paul has a problem with that. <laughs> he says this, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, here's the kicker, we know that a person is not justified. When you hear that word justified, hear right, good, saved. A, we know that a person is not right, good, justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. How? By faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Embrace this morning your inability to manage. Embrace it. Embrace him and his ability to complete that work. It's already done. And that's what we embrace when we come to communion. Is that justified how? Only one way. My ability to manage my week, manage my behavior, and manage my sin makes for a really sorry deliverer. It doesn't measure up. This is the only thing. This is our only hope. 
And when I manage behavior and I go back to that, look, I'm the world's worst. I do it every week. I need this reminder. Do this in remembrance of what? Me. That's what Jesus said. Do it in remembrance of me. Because when you manage your behavior and you try and manage the weak, you know what it yields? The same thing it yields in Peter. It yields hypocrisy. It yields somebody who is saying, thinking they're saying one thing about their faith, but their life is lived. I'm going to look good. Embrace your inability to be good and look good and manage your sin this morning. Just like Paul said, no one is justified apart from this bread and this blood. His body broken for you. And when he had given thanks, Jesus, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup. And after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Faith in Christ alone, take and eat. Until he comes, take and drink. Father, it's uh, our prayer this morning that you would, just as you've prepared our hearts for worship and song and, and taking this meal with you, um, it's my prayer that you would prepare our hearts to trust uh, also in what you say, that we would trust the word exposed this morning as we trust in you for our justification, for our only hope we also want to come and trust what you say. And so it's my prayer that this message would find uh, good soil this morning in our hearts. And um, we want to worship in response to what you've done and what you say this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Turn to First Peter 4, 7, please. That'll be our main text this morning. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. This is Peter speaking, who has already been mentioned this morning and who we focused on uh, in good part for the last few weeks. And he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you in song. Because you command it, and it is our privilege. Lord, we remember you in the supper because you command it, and it is our sweet privilege. Lord, we gather here to, to listen to and take heed to and be hearers and, and not only hearers, but, but doers of this, this preached word because you command it, and it's a sweet privilege. Lord, those things with all the other aspects of our worship create a sweet reality for us that you are a God who is personal and relational and that it is a sweet 
reality for us to have such an intimate relationship with the sovereign Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you for being so merciful to your creation as creator. Lord, my prayer this morning is that we would be quickened to better, more robust, more biblical prayer. So I pray that you would sharpen and focus our hearts and our minds. Lord, I trust you in the delivery of this message. I am a sinner in need of redemption, and I'm preaching out of conviction, not arrival. Thank you for such sweet mercies. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is week two of our focus on sovereignty and prayer. And last week we called into question a a flawed perspective that many Reformed thinkers have. Namely that if God is going to do what God is going to do, then what's the purpose in prayer? That's not a good way of thinking. So we're slowly taking the word and allowing it to just explode that. If God is going to do what God is going to do, what is the point in praying? I'm really burdened personally that this body of believers does not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness in prayer. Many of us are lazy in prayer. And as God, through great mercy, shows us where we are lazy in prayer, or where we are wrong in our thinking on prayer, we have an opportunity to, to reform that and to, and to change that for His glory and for our good. If anyone would have a futile perspective on prayer, it seems it would be Peter, as we considered last week. No matter his action or his effort, the Lord would still accomplish His will, and even in spite of Peter at times. But for Peter, the realities of a sovereign God, for many of us, we have come, some of us just within a recent time period, we've come into this understanding that our God is sovereign. He's unshakable. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. His plans are timeless, and they existed with him in wisdom before he created time. So these realities of a sovereign and unshakable God actually drove Peter to encourage the church with these words, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter, like others who find themselves driven to pray, is encouraging us to follow in a like manner. The prophets urged God's people to pray. The apostles and disciples urged God's people to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. He modeled prayer for us, and he urges us to pray. God's people are to be regularly regularly reminded to turn Godward and to stay Godward because we have such a tendency to not stay Godward, as Brad already explained very clearly this morning. So we've already established in this verse that if you lose sight of the time that you live in, namely a time where Jesus has already come, but the end is not yet. That's the time we live in. That's why we call it the already and not yet. Jesus has already come, but the end is not yet. He will return again completely. If you lose sight of the fact that you live in that specific time, your prayers will suffer. The suffering of our prayers will stem from eagerly anticipating a number of other things above anticipating the return of our Savior. Like we sang about it a lot this morning. I hope you did so in spirit and in truth. 
Jesus, come back. We are waiting. The church eagerly anticipates your return. When we eagerly anticipate even good things out of order, our prayers are hindered. You may anticipate retirement. You may anticipate better health, hopefully, one day. You may anticipate marriage. You may anticipate children. It may be good things, but if you anticipate them above your anticipation for the return of our Savior to redeem the world, then your prayers will suffer. You'll be distracted in your prayers, is what these verses are telling us. If it is our salvation and our Lord that we anticipate most, our prayers will not be sacrificed on the altar of worldly pursuits. Last week we saw in Habakkuk's prayers that um, God's always doing far more than we realize. Remember Habakkuk went to God and he was like, God, you're idle. You ever prayed that boldly and wrongly? Wouldn't that be a bummer if that was your only prayer and it was recorded in Scripture? (laughs) God, you're not doing good today. Listen to me and you'll do better. See, Habakkuk's prayer, he was not very respectful. He was not very reverent when he went to the Lord, but the Lord replied to him in a way that was very, very, very merciful. The Lord, rather than saying, oh yeah, and squashing him, the Lord said, I'm doing more than you could even understand if I told you, which is a sweet encouragement. And they continue to go back and forth. And what we see is there was this change that happened in Habakkuk because God's always doing more than we can comprehend. So our focus this morning is on the second half of the verse. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. That's our focus this morning. Last week, we talked about the end of all things being at hand. This morning, therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Howard Hendricks, in his book, Living by the Book, it's a really, if you're wondering how do I study my Bible, it's a very good resource. One of the things he reminds us to do is, anytime you see a therefore, ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? And I want you to just go a couple verses before. That's what it causes us to do. And look at verse 1 in 1 Peter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Because the end of all things is at hand, because we have been given God's grace in Christ, because we're to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God, because of these things, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What this means is that God has done a mighty work in Christ that by design is supposed to affect your prayers. You ever thought about what happened on the cross? The suffering that Jesus endured, the payment for the penalty of our sins, that at least what happened there in part was for the sake of your prayers. That gives me a heightened reality as to what I'm doing when I'm praying and the importance of it. Romans 12 explains that we walk and breathe and act and speak as a living sacrifice designed to put the glory of our great God on display. So the finished work of Christ has has a great effect on the way that we live and the way that we live has, has a great effect on the rightness of our prayers and our approach to praying. What all this comes together to show us is that rather than prayer being just a part of our lives, it is in effect essential to all of life. 
Rather than you having all these different parts of your life and prayer being one of them, prayer is essential to all of life. God aimed on the cross to have an impact on your prayer life. It's important. It's not just optional. It's not one of those things that, well, some people are good at it and some aren't and we just move along. We all should be striving to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. So I want to work backwards. That phrase, for the sake of your prayers. What does this phrase mean? For the sake of could be for the purpose of your prayers or in the interest of your prayers or in order to preserve or achieve something in your prayers. So I would ask you the question. I'm asking this question to stir your minds. Do you see great purpose in your prayers? Do you see any purpose in your prayers? Because I I would believe that many sitting here may say no to that. Do you see great purpose or any purpose in your prayers? I believe many sitting right here, God-fearing believers in the Bible belt, would say, no, I don't. I really struggle with that. Turn to 1 Peter 3, 7, just one chapter before. Peter's prayer life was greatly affected. He encourages the church and he encourages even marriages and families. Look at 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So many throughout the years have gotten caught up in the fact that this verse calls a woman a weaker vessel, that we miss the staggering implication that there's a way of living that can hinder your prayers, men. Do you see what that verse just said? There is a way of living with your wife where if you're not living in an understanding way, that means like communication and not just being on the same page from a scheduling standpoint, but being on the same page spiritually. If you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, God cares so much about you living with your wife in an understanding way that he will in fact interrupt his communication with you and your communication with him. Your prayers could actually be hindered if you're not living in an understanding way. So the question is, would you care if your prayers are hindered? Do you guard against your prayers being hindered? Men, have you ever thought, I need to make sure to clearly communicate this to my wife so that we can live together in an understanding way so that I can guard against my prayers being hindered? I don't naturally do that. I don't have that perfect line of thinking when something is lacking understanding. Would you even know if your prayers were hindered? Would it have an impact on anything in your mind or the way life is going? This is important because 1 Peter 4, 7 is making an appeal to one who cares about living in a certain way for the sake of their prayers. If I were to tell you to do something for the sake of the team, you would need to have a particular interest in the team, right? If I were to tell you to do something for the sake of time, then time would need to be of some concern to you. If I were to tell you to act in a certain way for the sake of a particular cause, you would really need to care something about that cause in order for your actions to really be affected at all. So the question remains, if you're told to tend to something for the sake of your prayers, 
Do you have a vested interest in prayer that is sufficient to spur you towards the thing which you have been urged? Last week, we considered that our prayers serve the purpose of changing us, not God. God is not the one who needs to be conformed to his own will. That sounds obvious. I'll say it again. God is not the one who needs to be conformed to his own will. And frankly, he doesn't need to be conformed to your will either. We need to be changed and molded by the potter so that we might be used as vessels of mercy poured out as our maker sees fit. In prayer, we are changed. But consider this. Is the purpose of prayer limited to the change that it affects in the children of God? Is that it? That's what we're going to look at for a moment this morning. Is that all that there is to it? I need to pray because I need to be changed. This question refers to the last part of your verse. Can, for the sake of your prayers, be simply translated for the sake of the change that needs to happen in you? So to answer this question, is that all it's about? Just changing us. I want to look at the prayers of uh, some who undoubtedly had great interest in their prayer. Were their prayers offered only so that they themselves might be changed? We're going to look at the persistent widow. We're going to look at Elijah. Their prayers have been greatly noted throughout Christian history and in the Word, obviously. So turn to Luke 18. The persistent widow. As we turn there, just be thinking about what you have heard about the persistent widow and maybe things you've been taught. I've heard a lot of really great teaching in in my upbringing, like as a younger man being brought up in the church as a boy. Um, And I've heard a lot of great teaching, and this is not one of the areas where I heard it. This is confusing. This is hard. Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So we find the purpose of this parable right up front. Jesus is the one telling the parable to his disciples And he's telling it to them for the sake of their prayers, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The reason that you may not pray is because you've lost heart. Some of us sitting here right now may have ceased praying because we've lost heart. And Jesus urges us forward in prayers to not cease praying and to not lose heart. And he does so with these verses. Look at verse 2. He, Jesus, said, in a certain city... There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
At first glance, it appears that the widow's persistence is that which has earned her favor. Now, I think that we can take this parable and look at the wrong perspective and be quickly led to the right perspective. So let's just take it one point at a time. First, God is not an unrighteous judge, so don't compare them. God is being contrasted with the unrighteous judge. He's perfectly righteous. God's not an unrighteous judge. So don't look at that and say, okay, so I need to go bother God. He's not an unrighteous judge. He's being contrasted with the unrighteous judge, not compared to him. Next, the prayers of God's children are not a bother to him. They're not. You may feel that way. That's just a feeling. Your reality is not defined by the way that you feel. Prayer is talked in Scripture. I'll talk about it later on, but as, as in, like incense, like a sweet aroma to God. He's not bothered by that. Next, the persistent widow is asking for justice, not a new car. Psalm 9-7 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. So she's not bringing up something new that God doesn't know about. And in doing it over and over again, finally He gives in. She wants justice. God does not... This is the next one. God does not grant your requests so that you will stop letting your requests be made known. That's not how God works. Quit bothering me. He doesn't grant your request so that you'll stop letting your request be made known. Last week we considered Philippians says that leads to anxiety. You don't have to be anxious about anything. God's very merciful. He says, don't be anxious. I'm God and I hear your prayers. I give you great confidence. Do not be anxious but let your request be made known and I'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and I'll give you peace that exceeds understanding. He's not like the unrighteous judge. He's altogether different and it's beautiful. He grants your requests so that you keep letting your request be made known. Or he changes your request. Conclusion, God is not an unrighteous judge who needs to be persistently pestered by us by way of our bothersome prayers so that he might get that which we think is best. That's not what this parable is saying at all. Petition is in regards to justice, and that's something that God's always been about. One of the things we glean from this parable so that we would not cease praying and so that we would not lose heart is to pray for that which God is about. God's revealed many things to you about who he is and what he's doing, what he has done and what he's going to do. Pray to that end. That's praying in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're doing. We're not going to God with our prayers and just blowing his mind. I didn't even think of that. That's not what we're doing. Look at verse 8. It sounds very the. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That sounds a lot like the end of all things is at hand. What's Jesus going to find when he returns? So how does this help? There's an ESV note in the study Bible that's actually quite clear. There's no need to reinvent the wheel, so I'll read it. From God's perspective, justice will come to his elect speedily. But from our human, fragile 
common, feeble perspective, justice may seem to be a long time coming. Therefore, God's people must persist in prayer as the widow persisted until she received justice. It said, will Jesus find faith on earth? And the answer is yes. But Jesus poses this as a question in order to encourage his disciples to constant watchfulness and prayer. Does that define your prayer life? Constant watchfulness, eagerly anticipating the return of our Lord. When he returns, Jesus will be looking for those who are praying for who are praying and watching for him. So to return to our original question, is prayer only about the change that happens in us? I believe that we can say no. It is about the change that happens in us, but it doesn't stop there. It's so much greater. It goes so much further. Prayer displays the purposes of our God. That's what just happened with the persistent widow. Prayer reminds us and others. It reminds us and it actually tells others of what Jesus will be looking for when he returns. Prayer, again, keeps us Godward when the world around rages for our attention. Do you find that your life, day-to-day, work environment is one that really fosters an environment of prayer? I don't, and I'm a pastor. Prayer reminds us and others what to focus on, or more importantly, who to focus on. Prayer turns us towards justice for God's elect, not toward thoughts of a heavenly bellboy who's eager to meet our every whim. That's not what happened with the persistent widow. So yes, prayer goes beyond the change that it causes in the believer, and I think it's really important that we see that. It displays the one in whom the believer prays and whom the believer rests eternally. Prayer, like the gospel, is always more about God than it is about us. We have to be careful here. After I preached last week's sermon, I realized the need for more clarity right here. Because if we are limited to thinking that prayer is only about the change that takes place in us, then we can unintentionally fall into the folly of thinking that prayer is in fact about us, and it's not. There's no single aspect of my faith that terminates on me. It always leads me and us to God. So hopefully, some of us are convinced you don't don't change God. But there may still be some other lingering questions. Like, what about just swaying God? I don't want to change Him. I just want to sway Him a little bit. Do we sway God? Turn to 1 Kings 18. As you turn there, I want you to remember what James 5, verses 17 through 18 says about a prophet named Elijah. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, this wasn't a science experiment. There was a purpose behind this. And we're going to look at the purpose. That's why you're turning to 1 Kings. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I want to look at what happened here. What's the rest of the story here? Why did he even say that prayer? 
Was God waiting for Elijah to say the prayer so that God could withhold the rain? And was God eagerly waiting to make it rain until Elijah finally decided it should be so? Is that what happened? Let's look at it. How does a man just like us do this? Can I pray like this? It wouldn't rain for three and a half years. There's a little background you need to know here. King David, a man after God's own heart, was raised up, and um, he was king of Israel. And what happened was he shed too much blood, and he could not be the one to build the Lord's sanctuary, the temple. And so his son, Solomon, came in, and Solomon was blessed with this unmatched wisdom. God really blessed Solomon with wisdom to such a degree that the whole earth would just marvel at the way that he dealt with things, the insight that he had, the understanding that he had, the clarity of thought that he had. And, he, and Solomon was the one who actually built the temple. But as Solomon got older, it says he loved many foreign women. And those foreign women led Solomon to worship their foreign gods. And so rather than being a man after God's own heart, his heart strayed and he went after many other gods. The kingdom was then divided because of the godlessness, and there was a run of a lot of different kings, some good, mostly bad, and it got to one king named Omri, O-M-R-I, and it said of that guy that there was no one who was worse than him. He was the worst of the worst. He was worse than everyone who ever went before him. And if you read all of 1 Kings, you're like, wow, he must have been really bad. Then he had a son named Ahab. And it said of Ahab, he was worse than anyone before him, including his dad. So Ahab is bad news. Does not fear the Lord. And he's turned from God. And in these dire circumstances, God raises up a prophet named Elijah. Now, this was not a good time to be a prophet. This would be like someone coming and saying, they're killing all the librarians. And God coming to you in a vision and saying, I want you to be a librarian. Bad timing. (laughs) See, Ahab's wife's name was Jezebel. And she was taking the prophets of God and killing them. And there was someone named Obadiah who was saving the prophets of God, and he took about 100 of them, put 50 in this cave and 50 in this cave, and took care of them so that Jezebel wouldn't kill him. But Obadiah was still Ahab's right-hand man. You see this? This is crazy. You see it? So Obadiah is helping God's prophets, even though Jezebel is killing God's prophets, and Obadiah is working with Ahab. And Elijah goes to Obadiah and says, tell Ahab I want to see him. Now, look at 1 Kings 17. We'll climb into this a little deeper. Verses 1 through 4. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab. Ahab's a king, right? Elijah's a prophet. Oftentimes when the prophets speak, people don't like to hear what they have to say. That's what's happening here. Elijah says to him, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Whoa, Elijah, that's a pretty big claim, because if it rains tomorrow, you're done. You see that? Except by my word, there will be no rain or dew. Not even dew. Nothing. Dry. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, 
And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I'll just have the birds feed you. It'll be fine. Now look at 18, verse 17. So he's gone away for a while, and he's come back, and this is sort of like the showdown at the OK Corral. The hay goes by, and here comes Elijah and Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Like, like Elijah speaks truth, right? Yet the godless leadership says, you're troubling Israel. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah sends him a zinger. I've not troubled Israel, you have. <laughs> In your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, they decided to make their own God. And look what happens. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah's saying, let's do this thing. Come on. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna settle something here. Bring them out to Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different Opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. If you were a gambling man, you wouldn't be betting on Elijah right here. 450 to 1. Don't gamble. Stop it. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. You see this? The stage is set. Your pile of sacrifice, my pile of sacrifice. All 450 of y'all call upon Baal. Whoever brings down fire is the true Lord. I'm going to call upon the Lord. You call upon a God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. We'll do just that. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it for you are many. Like you don't even have to have a bunch of bulls. You just get one, just like me. That's all, that's all you need. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Because Baal has no voice. And they limped around the altar that they had made, I love that they're limping. It's just such an such a unhealthy movement. They're having to limp around the altar that they made. And look what happens. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. I can identify with Elijah here. He mocked them saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself. He's taking a little potty break. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I don't know if he had a British accent. That was weird, but it's a potty break. Look at verse 28. 
And they cried aloud. Look what they did, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. I want us to see the prayer. This, that verse, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. That's the verse before Elijah prayed for three and a half years. Let's see the prayer of a righteous man as has great power as it's working. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Have you ever tried to light a wet campfire? It never works. Like you put two hours into it. It ain't going to light unless you got a lot of gasoline. They're not even allowed to light it. They're calling on the name of their God. Fill four jars with water and pour water on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So there's an altar and a sacrifice covered in water and a trench around it filled with water. It's soaked. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. He doesn't say, let it be known this day that I am awesome in prayer. Let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Everything we've seen was done at God's word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and wood and stones and dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. But yeah, it got the bull and all the stones and the dust and the water. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there, because no one could hear them. The people of God had turned from God to worship and pray to and depend upon the Baals. The prophets of Baal were being worshipped while Jezebel was killing the prophets of God. So we pose the question of get, again, was God at least swayed by Elijah's prayers? After reading that, do you really get the sense that God needed to be swayed? I think our answer is in verse 36 and 46. Verse 36 says, he wants them to know that I, Elijah, have done all these things at your word. Whose word? Why did he pray that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years? God's word. Why did he call out the prophets of Baal on this crazy dramatic showdown? God's word. 
Look at verse 46. It's about to rain. And he sent Ahab off saying, you don't want to get caught in this rain. Verse 46, it says, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So was God at least a little bit swayed here? Apparently, it was the hand of the Lord on Elijah, not the hand of Elijah on the Lord. There's a big difference there. If you view prayer as a means of changing or swaying God from wrong to right, then it is not a prayer of faith in God, is it? You might, if you're sitting here thinking, why would I ever pray like that? Many people pray like that. If you view God like that of the Baals, that he might be snoozing or relieving himself. Maybe God's just stubborn and he's not listening to my prayer. And you're losing sight of the fact that the Lord, in 1 John 5, 14, he gives us confidence that when we call upon him, when we draw near to him, he hears us and he listens So if you only go to God to get him on your page, your faith is not in him. Your faith might be in your prayers. Consider the the small, distinct difference there. I'm praying. I'm praying to God. But if your only reason for praying is to get God on your page, then it might be possible that your faith isn't, in fact, in God, but it's in your prayers. I had a season of my life where I was really enjoying praying and seeing things happen. I was like, wow, this is cool. To where I really was convicted that at one point I, I was sort of putting my faith in my prayers as opposed to the God of my prayers. Or it could be worse. Maybe your faith is just in yourself. If we pray in such a manner, we're in fact saying with the poem Invictus, I am indeed the captain of my own soul. Or to put it another way, I know what's best. God will find out through me when I tell him. Do you think like that about God in prayer? We don't go to God to tell him what's best. We go to God to seek what is best. You're not going to him to remind him of something that he forgot or never knew. You go to him seeking what's best, namely him. Turn to Psalm 34. As you do, I'm going to read 1 Chronicles 16. Psalm 34, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Once you get to Psalm 34, look at verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. There's a kid song that my kids sing all the time from our summer clubs. I won't sing it. But look what it says here. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. There's a difference between seeking his face and seeking his hand. There's a distinct difference here that the one being spoken of here who is rejoicing because of their relationship with the Lord is seeking God, which is a difference. It's different than seeking the good thing through God. Do you see that? Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He knows what's best. 
But, but if you're not actually seeking the Lord in prayer, but you're only seeking the good thing in prayer, your perspectives are off balance and your prayers will suffer. Seek the Lord and lack no good thing. Which brings us to the first part of the second half of 1 Peter 4, 7. Did you catch that? Turn back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4, 7. The first part of the second half of the verse. That is the least clear thing I've ever said in the last 10 minutes. 1 Peter 4, 7. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded and self-controlled. According to Galatians, self-control is not a behavioral issue. It's not simply just a behavioral issue. Control yourself. It's not behavioral. It's a worship issue. Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So if I want the fruit of self-control in my life for the sake of my prayers, I'm dependent upon the work of the Spirit. If I want the fruit of self-control in my life for the sake of my prayers, I'm content, I am totally dependent upon the work of the Spirit. I can't muster it. This is just drawing a really big picture of a very needy people going to a very great God in prayer as opposed to a very great people going to a so-so God in prayer who will be better when we inform him. I'm dependent upon the Spirit to even have self-control. I haven't even gotten to prayer yet. It's for the sake of my prayers. Turn to Galatians 5. Verse 24. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walk according to the way you have life. Romans states that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Take that in for a minute. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can pray in the flesh. We cited one of the uh, Puritan pastors said, I sin when I pray. We're sinners. And the flesh can creep in at any point. We can, we can even pray in the, in the flesh. But if you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other to keep the other from doing what the one wants to do. But we live by the Spirit, so we walk in that manner. Ultimately, this means that if, if we're setting our minds on worldly things, or if we're anticipating even good things above the return of our Lord, this fleshly living will result in self-control going by the wayside. And when self-control goes by the wayside, our prayers suffer. And when our prayers suffer, that should bother us. Without self-control, our prayers are greatly hindered. Esau is the biblical epitome of the one who lacks self-control. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau comes in. I want some, some of that red stew. It doesn't even say what flavor it is, just the fact that it's red. And he traded his birthright for red stew. We show that we value our birthright in our prayers. 
Esau gave way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences. And I want to narrow this down for us. What's being spoken of here is not just being self-controlled enough to pray fairly regularly. It's not, what's being spoken of here is not just be self-controlled as to be able to at least pray regularly. If you lack self-control in any area, it's getting in the way of your communication with your Lord. Any area. It's an appropriate response to consider the areas where you lack self-control. There is so many areas where we can just give way to the solicitation of the flesh and have no regard to eternal consequences just like Esau. Any area where self-control is lacking, it is in that area that your prayers are being hindered. But be encouraged that it's also in that area where God, by the work of His Spirit, aims to produce the fruit of self-control. Are you encouraged by that? Like, I know I lack self-control right here. Well, guess what? It's in that area where God aims, by the work of His Spirit, to produce the fruit of self-control. And in doing so, He shows you, I care about my communication with you and your communication with me, and I don't want it to be hindered. So I'll give you the fruit of self-control for the sake of your prayers. He does so because to Him, His communication with us and our communication with Him is of great importance. Some of us who are reformed thinkers and believe in a sovereign God and even those, those buzzwords like election and predestination. We fall into a way of thinking that I just don't know that he really cares that much. He's so sovereign and he's so great. I just can't imagine him caring about me at all. And I would bet that those who have those thoughts, because I've had those thoughts, I bet you struggle with prayer. Because it's hard to go to someone who, you don't really believe that that's possible. It's possible because he made it so. He's creator. We're created. It's important that we're able to hear from him. And in some crazy way that is hard to comprehend, it's important to him that he hears from his children. So all of these eternal realities work toward the... The final part of the verse, namely the call to be sober-minded. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 1.13, same book, just a little bit earlier, says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is so much in God's breathed out word that reminds us that walking by sight fails us. If you walk by sight, it fails you. If all that we can see is all that there is, or if all that there is is all that we can see, we're absolutely and totally doomed. But if there's more going on than what I can see, that gives me reason to walk by faith, and I do so prayerfully. Each week... This preached word does not just invade our sad realities with pleasantries. When you gather here on a Sunday morning to hear the preached word, which Peter calls the imperishable seed, that by it it takes root and we produce great fruit for the glory of God, this is not a time where we have a very sad reality 
that's briefly invaded by pleasantries and preaching. This time, these, real, these truths define our reality. It's not just a brief invasion. The preached word defines our realities. It informs our minds as to what is really going on. Like Habakkuk. God, you're idle. No, no, I'm not. Look at this. Look at this. Look what I'm doing with the Chaldeans. Look what I'm going to do to raise my people up. Look what I'm doing to, to make sure that they don't all turn from me. There's more going on. Habakkuk's version of reality was the wrong version. So God said, let me inform you as to the ultimate reality of what is going on. What's really important? I would offer that to be intoxicated with ultimate reality is to be as sober-minded as one is able. That's why the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. I don't want you to walk around believing lies about some horrible, futile thing we're living in that has no hope at all. Jesus is returning. It's very real. And he hears your prayers. That should affect you. We're not just, it's not just pleasantries. It's not just a, you keep them up. It goes way beyond that to informing our reality. My feelings do not define my reality. So take all of this in, these sweet realities on prayer, and go be heard by and hear from your Lord. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, you don't have to turn there, but listen closely. Remember the things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, you are great. You're greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. And we need to be reminded of that all the time. Not just every day. It goes beyond every day. I'm going to need a reminder of that an hour from now. Lord, my prayer for this body is that we would walk in this preached word. We would walk in this truth. Just because we've heard it does not mean that we have lived it. Lord, I know that you have prepared your people, some sitting here, some sitting in other places this morning. You have prepared us for a good work of ministry that puts your glory on display. There's still more to be proclaimed. And it, and it must be done so prayerfully. There are some who, who still do not believe. And we need to be urgent about sharing our faith. And we need to do so prayerfully. Lord, I'm thankful that you don't need me to come to you and tell you what to do. I'm thankful that you're not dependent upon me. I'm thankful that you are so incredibly great, yet you are personal and relational. I pray that that would draw us into prayer, that we would not be anxious, that we would let our requests be made known. 
And I pray that in that, my prayer is what you tell us, that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray your encouragement that you were giving to your disciples, that we would not cease prayer and that we would not lose heart. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation 5, you don't have to turn there. You can if you'd like. We have this reality that there's always more going on than we realize, and this gives us a glimpse into it in heaven, actually, through a vision that John had. If you don't turn there, just listen closely. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll in his right hand from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Listen to this. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And turn over to Revelation 8 verses 1 through 5. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We are living in a time in which our prayers and the prayers of the saints are being heard by God and received as a sweet aroma like incense. And somehow, in a manner that's really hard for me to comprehend, the prayers are being placed in golden bowls in heaven. And in preparation of Christ's return, those prayers will be poured out of golden bowls upon the earth in the form of judgment. So is there more going on when I pray? Absolutely, than I realize. This reminds me again in closing that a strong theology of prayer is not nearly as effective as, as a strong practice of prayer. Like we, we come to these times where we hear the teaching and the preaching and we form our theology and we form our doctrine and our understanding from this word. But that's not enough. A strong theology of prayer is not as effective as a strong practice of prayer. So I urge you to go and 
walk in the preached word. Be doers of the word because there will be things that you'll accomplish in prayer that I really wish I could do it in the preaching about prayer, but I can't. I really wish I could. So the urge uh, for you is to um, make sure you go and pray. And don't just pray this week because that's what we preached on this week. Like I'm hoping you're walking in the preached word of what was preached on five weeks ago still. And you're not just like, okay, well, we pray this week. What are we going to do next week? That's not how it works. Just continue to walk as your, as your faith is built and grown and as God is sanctifying you and making you more like Christ. Scott was preaching this morning. I was thinking about this passage uh, very personally. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. On Thursday mornings, we gather with this church or whoever would like to be part of it for prayer. The elders come and we sit in that back corner of the sanctuary at 6.30 on Thursday mornings, and we pray. And this last Thursday morning, my alarm went off about 5.30, 5.45, and then 6, I think, was the last time it went off. And um, I killed it, and I woke up about 7.30, and um, I texted Scott or called him, probably both, said, man, I really missed prayer this morning. I I, I, you know, at first I felt a little bit guilty because I wasn't there, but second, I felt like, man, I missed something. You know, it wasn't like I, I mean, I, I did deal with some personal, you probably self-imposed guilt for missing a Thursday morning prayer time, but it was less about that and more about, I missed out on a chance to be changed. And I missed out on a chance to engage God in the changing of Greenville, because that's what happens when God's people gather. Not only are they changed, but what they pray about is changed. The situation is transformed. So I missed out on that opportunity. So, you know, just to personalize this for you, the end of all things is, is at hand, Ben. So therefore, go to bed at a reasonable hour on Wednesday night. Get some good rest so that you can raise up and get your prayer on at 630 with, with God's people. I mean, that's how personal this is for me right now. I encourage you, it may not be Thursday morning for you. If you're like me, you need to pray with other people. When I pray by myself, I mean, I'm like 30 seconds into my prayer, and I'm thinking, I got to get my oil changed today. And, oh, yeah, God, oh, man, I'm praying, and I, I need to cut my fingernails. I mean, it's crazy the stuff that enters my head. And I'm like, what if I were having a conversation with you and just all of a sudden started going all these different directions? You're like, hey, man, pay attention. I thought we were talking. But I need other people to pray with to really engage God in a, um, in a, in a, a meaningful way. So unless you're like some sort of, you know, island that can somehow pray as an island, which I'd be surprised, you probably need others to pray with. And I'm not saying you can't pray by yourself for the course of the day, but the cream is to pray with God's people. I mean, that's the cream. Thursday morning is just one of other opportunities. Some of the small group, small groups have groups that get together over the course of the week. I encourage you on a weekly basis to get together and be changed through prayer. Just get together with God's people. There will be no light show, no dancing girls, no smoke machines, no magic acts. You're going to walk in and you're going to close your eyes. You may fellowship for a few minutes. Close your eyes, and you're going to talk to somebody you can't see. And you're going to get up and think, well, did anything happen? And you can trust that what we engaged this morning, yeah, lots of stuff happened. Stuff that if he were to tell us, we wouldn't even believe it. That's the awesomeness of prayer. So I encourage you. It's just 
one opportunity that you have on Thursday mornings at 630. Um, hopefully there'll be one, possibly more, or all of the elders here, but uh, there are other, some of the deacons that come faithfully week by week. Man, we enjoy God together. So I encourage you, you're welcome to be part of that. Let me introduce a, a couple of families, a family of one first. Kyla, come on up. And uh, um, come on up also, Sherry and Andy. Two families. I, I, I refer to Kyla as a, a family, even though you're by yourself right now, because we, th- we look of you or we look at you like that, and we consider you one of our families at Crosspoint. Um, both of these families, Sherry and Andy, and uh, Kyla are coming for membership this morning. And I've really been trying to think through a way to summarize their stories. And I really think it would do an injustice to try and summarize it in 30 seconds. I really want you to get to know these families. Uh, Kyla's family right now, her, her biological family are in the, what islands? Tell me again. Marshall. Marshall. Christy told me just now and I, I wrote it down and I already forgot it. It's not, I don't really think about the Marshall Islands very often. They're in the Pacific Ocean. That's where her, her, her you know, biological family lives. So in some ways, she's coming to be part of this family because we're family. So you need to understand that. So um, I want you to know this, too, not only about Kyla, but also about Sherry. I don't know about Andy. I hadn't really gotten to know Andy's personality yet. But uh, Sherry and Kyla both confessed to having a difficult time letting people know them. They're okay with knowing but kind of letting people in. So this is a hard thing for them even to stand up here in front of you this morning. <laughs> they confess that right up front. They usually sit at the back and they sat midway up so they wouldn't have to make the long walk all the way up here. <laughs> I totally get that. And, there, you know, we need to be really, really attentive to those who are less outgoing and quiet and really try and know uh, those that have a difficult time letting folks in. Sherry and Andy are coming uh, also for membership. And Sherry, um, I, I just want you to get to know both of these stories. Sherry lost her husband a couple years ago to cancer. Um, and Kyla has kind of her own stories. I really want you to know them and know what God has done in their story because as, as Scott was preaching and I'm hearing about a sobriety, I was thinking about both of them. And I say both as both of these families because I hear a sober faith in both of them. I met with them last night at the Green's house. Christy and I met with them. And, and I was really, really, as I'm hearing Christ's work in their lives, I was really sobered myself about what this is on Sunday mornings and the travesty of mailing one in. When folks are showing up ready to eat because they need nourishment. And that's the way both of these families are coming ready to eat. So not only are they coming to dine, but they're coming to walk with God's people who are also dining to know and be known. Uh, So I encourage you to be part of that process. Both of these families are part of a small group and um, I encourage you whether through that small group or after we dismiss this morning to come up and get to know them and just make an appointment. Hey, let's get together for dinner in the next couple weeks. You invite them it's easier for you who've been here a while to invite a new family to get to know them than it would be for them to say, hey, come to my place. So let's take the initiative as the people of God and get to know these families. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Brad. Y'all are welcome. Y'all stay up here for a minute. <laughs> and all of you all stay here so people can come and, and uh, say hi to meet you. You bet. You bet. 
and don't go anywhere. Father, thank you for a great day. Thank you for your word, for the supper, for your grace, um, for the fellowship, for what you have given us in Jesus. Help us be good stewards of these families that are standing up here. And um, we are hoping that we're found faithful uh, with one another and being known and knowing. And um, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.